federal judge holds the government responsible for mistakes it made that allowed the Sutherland Springs shooter to obtain his firearm, and a conversation with Tiffany Johnson of Rangemasters. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison. All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. My name is Stephen Gutowski. I am your host, as well as the founder of TheReload.com. Uh, and today we're going to be talking a little bit about some big news out of the federal courts. Um, it's the first time ever uh, a federal judge has ruled that the government can be held liable for mistakes made during the background check process. Um, related to a mass shooting uh, in Sutherland Springs. Um, the shooter there obtained his gun, even though he was a prohibited person based on his criminal record while he was serving in the Air Force. He had a domestic violence conviction. He spent over a year in military prison for it and received a dishonorable discharge, which should have made him ineligible to buy firearms. Um, and, the problem was when he did go to buy his firearms that he used to commit um, the mass shooting, which left 25 people dead and 20 more injured. It's one of the most horrific attacks on you know random innocent people in, in American history. Um, when he went to buy his firearms to carry out that attack, he passed his background check. Um, you know he bought his guns from a retailer who ran a background check on him. Through the FBI's National Institute Criminal Background Check System, NICS, um, and NICS did not find any disqualifying records. Now, of course, he still wasn't legal for him to buy these guns, but there was no way for the the store that sold him the guns to know that because the Air Force never shared his criminal records with the FBI, and this was a very pervasive problem uh, up to this point. Uh, when it came to military records being shared with the FBI um, for the background check system. And so this uh, this guy was able to get his guns and then carry out his attack. And victims' families sued the government for this failure. And uh, uh, United States District Judge Javier Rodriguez ruled in their favor on um, <clears throat> on Tuesday and found that the government is at least 60% liable, so these families will be able to re recoup uh, damages caused by the loss of their loved ones or by the injuries um, to some of the, the surviving victims uh, from the government, um, which is, as far as I'm aware and from what experts told me from Duke University um, and UCLA and the Cato Institute, uh, this is the first time that's ever happened in relation to uh, failure regarding the background check system um, and the resulting murder of dozens of people. And uh, so that, that could really set an interesting precedent and is likely actually to help with a similar case in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, where the, uh, the church shooting uh, occurred and the shooter in that case was able to obtain his gun even though he likely would have been prohibited from doing so because of a pending uh, criminal charge for drug possession, um, which should have made him a, a prohibited person while that case was ongoing. But the FBI in that situation made a mistake and was didn't, they called the wrong police department to investigate 
his background, and he was able to obtain his gun and carry out his attack uh, as well. And the victims' families in, in that case are also suing, and now seems likely that they may win that case as well. Um, and that, that is an interesting uh, new development because, frankly, the, these uh, it's, it's fairly uncommon for the government to be held responsible for these sorts of uh, mouth, you know, negligence on their part. In this case, uh, in Sutherland Springs, the judge said that essentially the department that uh, within the Air Force that was tasked with uh, essentially law enforcement for for the section that uh, the shooter was um, stationed in was understaffed and overworked. But at the same time, leadership for that uh, department was negligent in how they allowed um, the how they didn't follow up to make sure that the fingerprints and record you know criminal records for the shooter had been submitted to the FBI like they were supposed to be um, in the first place. And so he says, you know, the the government failed to exercise reasonable care in its undertaking to submit criminal history to the FBI. The government's failure to exercise reasonable care increased the risk of physical harm to the general public, including plaintiffs. And its failure approximately caused the deaths and injuries of the plaintiffs at the Sutherland Springs First Baptist Church on November 5th, 2017. That was, that's in his ruling. So um, bottom line, the, the government uh, will have to pay these victims' families uh, for the negligence that led to this shooting occurring. Um, and it, that could set a precedent for other cases to come. Probably not every case. I mean, you still are likely to have um, scenarios where the government could have acted to prevent uh, someone from being able to, to obtain guns. For instance, with Parkland shooter, there were a number of uh, so-called red flags or a number of incidents where he likely could have either been charged or involuntarily committed for uh, domestic violence uh, incidents or suicidal ideations that he'd, he'd made clear before the attack, but uh, was never actually um, committed or convicted of, of a crime beforehand and so didn't have a criminal record to disqualify him when he went to purchase his guns. Whereas in, the, in this case in Sutherland Springs, not only did he have the uh, criminal record, but he had a, a pretty long one that would have disqualified him in several different ways if the Air Force had done its due diligence in submitting his records to the FBI, and they simply didn't do that. In a similar situation with Charleston, where if the FBI had not screwed up their investigation into that shooter's background, he would have been uh, likely prevented from purchasing a gun, uh, at least legally. And um, so those cases is sort of more direct negligence on the part of government uh, agents, and, and those seem like a distinct uh, situation from something like if you call the police and they don't respond in a timely manner and you suffer harm because of that, you're less likely to be able to ever hold the government liable for your harm because they don't have necessarily a duty to um, prevent harm from coming to you. Um, it's more in, in these situations where they, uh, a government agent is not 
performing their duties as laid out by the law, um, then you have a, a possibility of, of holding the government civilly liable in court uh, over that failure. But uh, either way, interesting, really groundbreaking development, uh, I think, as far as it, it comes to uh, government accountability for mistakes that led to the loss of life on a really a grand scale in this case, certainly. Um, but I, I'm sure we'll see more uh, on the Charleston case uh, soon as well, because the, that was allowed to go forward in 2019 by the, the I believe, the Fourth Circuit. Um, and so there should be a ruling in that case relatively soon. You know, COVID has kind of slowed a lot of the courts down. But, um, you know, certainly that's well beyond the preliminary stages. And we would presumably get a final ruling on whether or not the FBI and government writ large can be held liable for the mistakes that led to the Charleston shooting as well. Uh, But moving on to something we covered a little bit last uh, week, June's sales numbers came in uh, and they were the second best on record. But interestingly... um, there's something of a pattern beginning to emerge with the 2020 gun sales numbers, 2021, sorry. Uh, and I wrote about this for the members section, which, by the way, if you become a Reload member, not only will you get access to exclusive pieces like this one I'm about to talk about, but you will also get this podcast a day early on the website. So head on over to the Reload.com and sign up today if you haven't already. But uh, the trend we're seeing with 2021's gun sales are that uh, they're, they're not record anymore. We're not beating 2020's numbers anymore um, like we were at the beginning of the year in January and February. Um, but they are the second best numbers ever. So the, there's been a drop-off, and really the drop-off in June was fairly significant, almost a million uh, units and guns uh, sold, a million fewer in 2021 than 2020, because 20, March 2020, if we all remember how that went, uh, was unprecedented. It's an all-time record for any month in history, and um, is unlikely to be hopefully replicated due to all the circumstances that motivated people to buy guns in, in uh, March 2021. Same for June 2020, which is when uh, we saw the onset of widespread rioting in the United States. Um, that led a lot of people to buy guns uh, in that month as well. We did not see that same level of violence occur this year, and so gun sales were down significantly. But they were still wildly elevated over what their normal level is. And I think that's probably where you're going to see 2021 end up uh, as we move throughout the rest of this year. Um, you know, I wouldn't go out and sell my uh, Smith & Wesson stock necessarily uh, because June's gun sales were not as high as last year's. Uh, and, you know, I think it'll actually be interesting to see how the fall goes, because by the fall of 2020, we had seen a lot of the motivating factors that jumped out at Americans in the early part of 2020, the beginning of the pandemic, the uh, racial unrest from, um, you know, incidents of police brutality, the rioting, the, I mean, just the meat shortages, right? There, there was a lot that happened last year, but by the fall, you know, 
a lot of that was beginning to recede, um, and people were, as best they as they possibly could, getting. I don't. I don't know if used to living with the virus is the right phrase, but but certainly adapting to the new reality of living in a pandemic. Um, and so presumably a lot of the factors that were driving the, those record numbers in uh, early 2020 had come down by the fall, um, just like you're seeing now in 2021. Um, they, they didn't go away completely, obviously, uh, and certainly the some of the worst uh, days for the virus were still to come by uh, fall 2020. But um, certainly I think a lot of the uh, <laughs> the chaos element had been uh, lessened by then. And it'll be interesting to see how 2021 sales numbers match up against 2020. Because I think um, by the fall, you'll... Things had normalized in the, uh, you know, to a certain degree at least, in motivation factors for buying guns. And so with that level of uh, anxiety buying dying down last fall, um, I wonder if that will match what we see here in 2021, because that's, I think, the reason why gun sales have not been to the level of 2020 sales. It's just the, uh, the chaos level is is lower than it was in you know March or June of 2020. And so, will I don't know October November of 2021 actually exceed the same months from the previous year? Because I mean, you obviously have what's left now beyond the lingering you know. <laughs> concerns that we still have about the, you know, the, the pandemic and the economy and everything that's still uh, an issue. Uh, now we have heightened concerns about the politics, uh, the political element, the push for gun control. Certainly President Biden is uh, continuing to aggressively push for new gun restrictions, um, both legislatively, which obviously is not as likely to happen, but also through executive action where he is likely to be able to overcome uh, obstacles put uh, in his way by Republicans or other or gun rights activists generally. And so with that continuing to occur, uh, you might actually see an elevated sense of uh, urgency to purchase guns, especially certain kinds of guns, pistol-braced um, firearms for, for one, uh, this fall than you saw even in the run-up to the election last year because the election, as much as there was a stark contrast on guns between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, it wasn't a primary issue in that election because of just everything else going on in the country. Um, and so now with sort of the realities of these executive actions sinking in during the fall, Will that drive more people to buy guns out of concern over uh, their availability because of President Biden's push to to ban or restrict certain kinds of guns? Uh, so that's what I'm that's what I'm going to look for. I think when we get here, obviously we're in the summer now, which is the slow season for gun sales traditionally, um, and the fall is when things tend to pick back up. And so you should expect to see higher sales 
coming anyway, but will they exceed 2020 or will they stay on track to be uh, like this recent trend where they're second best ever, but the second best is still way higher than, uh, than the previous years in 2019, 2018, 2017. Um, obviously I cover a little, a uh, little bit more about this. I talked to, or I had an exchange with Larry Keene of the national shooting sports foundation, which is the gun industries trade group where he describes, you know, how these sorts of things usually um, level out after a big surge. And so uh, you should head on over there and, and uh, check that piece out. Uh, there's also the piece on the, the federal judges first of a kind ruling. Um, so head on over to the reload.com. If you haven't already read these pieces and check them out today and, and again, join if you want this podcast day early and you want access to these sorts of, um, extra special analysis pieces that I do for the members. So, uh, and you also get, of course, the weekly members newsletter where I go in, in more depth on the analysis side of things as well. Uh, but all that said, let's move on to our special interview this episode with Tiffany Johnson, uh, of, um, the, uh, range masters training program, uh, and, uh, so much more really. She, she really, I think will give us a lot of really interesting insights into, um, black gun ownership, gun culture 2.0, uh, I get, you know, the polarization of guns too. We talk about a lot of interesting things. So, uh, let's head on over there now. We're here with Tiffany Johnson from range masters. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, gun culture 2.0 today, as well as, uh, outreach to minority groups and black gun ownership in America. So, uh, Tiffany, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself for for listeners who might not know you? Sure. Uh, well, my name is Tiffany Johnson and I am a reformed, um, anti-gunner, I guess. <laughs> um, I started out afraid of guns, was definitely not a gun person for the first half of my life. And uh, I'm actually still not really a gun person, although that might surprise some people. So if you're curious why I say that, maybe we can jump into that a little later. But um, sure. but I do train quite a bit, and uh, I am now an instructor for Range Master. When I decided I was going to take a class despite my fears, I just so happened by sheer dumb luck to walk into Range Master and take my very first class with the one and only, the famous, the incomparable Tom Givens. <laughs> I didn't have any idea who he was at the time, but he, for some reason, took me under his wing, and uh, we've been close ever since. He's a, a, a an esteemed mentor of mine, and I guess the rest is history. Um, it was through Range Master that I met Akil Kadir, who is the owner of Citizen Safety Academy. Um, he and I both are uh, Range Master certified master instructors, and um, I teamed up with Akil, and so now not only do I help Tom and Lynn Givens with Range Master events, but I also teach through Akil's company, which is Citizen Safety Academy. Wonderful. And, and you guys have some uh, events coming up soon, right? Yeah, uh, we've, we've got a lot going on. Actually, Akil was really focused this year for 2021 on hosting other instructors. So we're bringing in a ton of folks who have got some national name recognition. Uh, the, the idea there was to kind of expose our, our local um, community and the region to some of the trainers that we revere and that we train with so often. So we've got this weekend, actually, Chuck Haggard is coming in and we're bringing in John Johnston and um, Brian Hill and 
uh, let's see, John um, Murphy is coming. So we've got a lot of guest instructors coming in. But our, our standard fare is basic entry-level permit-style classes. Um, Tennessee, just as of July 1, has now gone permitless. Um, mm -hmm. Not quite full constitutional carry, but it is now a permitless carry state. So we're tweaking our curriculum a little bit to accommodate that change in the law. But that's kind of our sweet spot where Akil and I teach. We like working with brand new shooters. Um, so the other thing that we're focusing on this year is training up new, uh, new instructors, particularly right. to teach new shooters, because we think that's mm. a very nuanced skill that not everybody is very good at, not everybody enjoys. Certainly. And, and, uh, and you have a particular focus on uh, instructors for um, the, you know, the new demographics that are coming into the gun owning community at a higher rate now is sort of a gun culture 2.0, as a lot of people have, have uh, called it. Um, you know, more minorities, more women, uh, people from more urban areas rather than rural areas, you know, that, that sort of thing, younger people. Um, what's, uh, what's the goal there? What are you, what are you trying to accomplish with, with that program of training these, these new instructors? Right. Well, um, so it, it, it may seem like a, a distinction without a difference, but we think it really does matter. I do want to make sure it's clear that we're, we're, not, we're not so much focused on uh, training black instructors or female instructors or training instructors to work with any particular racial or gender demographic, mm -hmm. but instead, more broadly, what we hope to do is um, make instructors writ large aware of the ways that they may subconsciously um, limit their target market and, mm -hmm. you know, kind of help people see what their blind spots are and ways that they can make their their services and their products that they offer more attractive to non-traditional gun owners, new gun owners, all of the folks that you just mentioned. So we are definitely not advocates of any kind of separation, and we certainly don't, don't advocate for any distinction in the, the techniques that are taught to one demographic or another, and that includes gender. I teach women basically the exact same way I teach men. Um, but we do want instructors of the Gun Culture 2.0 um, community to understand how that community receives instruction differently than, um, you know, training communities of old. And also how we can tweak our teaching styles so that we are, so we lend ourselves more to a universality of, of um application rather than mm. just speaking towards one narrow group of people. Okay, I see. So it's not so much about training instructors to, uh, you know, uh, help a particular demographic of people. It's more about, uh, you know, training instructors to be uh, able to speak to all sorts of different demographics of people. Is that that's how you see it? That's right. Absolutely. Okay. And, you know, and I, and I don't mean to to split hairs here. I mean, I certainly, uh, we own the fact that our training attracts non-traditional gun owners, like all the demographics you named, black folks, young folks, urbanites, millennials, uh, women. Uh, we're, we're proud of that, but we do not, want, we are not exclusionary and we're not training those folks at the expense of or to the exclusion of 
anybody else. In fact, what our what our primary goal is, our I guess our big overreaching umbrella goal is to bring the different groups together so that they realize what Akil and I have come to realize, which is they're not really as different as they think they are. (laughs) They're just separate. And separate is different from actually being different. Um, As I gravitate towards one group or another, um, it it, it baffles me how how often they say the same things, they express the same concerns, uh, and they have the same fears, the same priorities, even despite hailing from different demographics or even different political persuasions. And so we would love for our students to see that and to celebrate it and to realize, hey, there's not there's not much of a difference between us after all. I know that sounds really cliche and almost corny, (laughs) but it's actually true. And if we if we want to shore up the Second Amendment for generations to come, I think it would behoove us as a community to to embrace that and own it and use it to our advantage. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Um, now, so what are some of the things that you do differently uh, to try and, and have this cross-demographic appeal, this cross-partisan appeal uh, that you're going for? What are, what are a few of the things that ha- are sort of holding back traditional uh, gun training, uh, and what are the things that you guys are doing different to try to break through that? Yeah, so um, it's sometimes it's really simple things, and it may feel... Uh, it may feel like it's touchy-feely or overly um, over, overly sensitive, um, and I know that that's sometimes taboo in in the traditional gun community. But I think that sensitivity to these different, um, you know, different different backgrounds is important. So it can be something as simple as um, who's greeting people when your students come through the door. Uh, what photos are posted on the wall or what books are on the shelf or what posters do you have framed in your training space or in your gun store if you're if you're a retailer um you know what products are you offering and do they appeal to people from all kinds of different backgrounds what music are you playing when people walk through your doors um i think that we trainers and retailers in the in the gun community uh, we should try and diversify ourselves and kind of think about well am I just going to play the music that I want to hear or am I going to change it up from day to day and maybe play things that my customers or my students may want to hear even if it's not my favorite type of music hmm. interesting um, and and so you've been doing this for a while now right um, and, and you've become one of the most prominent uh, African-American women in the, the training space at this point. Uh, you were just in Shooting Illustrated, uh, 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 an article by uh, uh, famous trainer uh, Mayuda Saab. Or, sorry, I think I butchered his name. But, uh, <laughs> Masada Yub. <laughs> Masada Yub. Got his, I, got got his, got his, I sort of mixed up the syllables. There. <laughs> but, <okay>. uh, <laughs> but obviously very well-known, very well-respected trainer and and, uh, uh, you know, you, he wrote a piece on this topic where, where he quoted you. Um, now, I, so I wonder, uh, in your experience now, what have you seen change for the better or for the worse uh, over the last, you know, uh, period of years that you've, you've been doing this? Sure. So f- there's been a lot of change for the better. Um, and I think, ironically enough, much of the impetus for that change has also 
brought about some change for the worse. Um, mm. And a lot of that has to do with uh, political wins of late. So during the Obama years, there was a huge swing to the right by uh, general, you know, kind of mid, mid-range conservatives as a reaction to Obama. And then in the Trump era, there was a giant swing to the left. And so the middle has been kind of vacated. And I think that that's, that can be a potential problem for us because it it just sort of um, carves out a huge space where there's no there's no commonality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the upside is that we've seen as you as you indicated with gun culture 2.0, and I think there's an argument to be made that we're encroaching upon gun culture 3.0. Uh, there's been a huge upswing in firearm sales and an explosion of new gun owners. And again, a, a, a large percentage of those new gun owners are uh, non-white, non-male, um, you know, non-traditional, not your standard, stereotypical kind of card-carrying NRA member. Right. So that's great. I think the increase in numbers is great, and I also think the increase in diversity is great. Um the downside but you, but, go ahead uh, I just wanted to, to touch on that uh, the core of what you were saying there about uh, essentially polarization of, of gun ownership in America mm-hmm. right? that's the downside um, yeah yeah you, you've seen uh, certainly um, you've had I think uh, a lot of people fall into the idea on both sides really of the aisle uh, that guns are really just for Republicans conservative Republicans are the only people who should own guns or can own guns or or, or whatever. Uh, and, um, you know, I, so you see that obviously as a, a, a significant roadblock to expanding gun ownership, right? But, but um, you know, obviously you have people who argue that, uh, you know, Democrats or, or liberals should not be welcomed in the gun community because they support policies that, uh, or at least vote for people who support policies that would restrict gun ownership, Um you know, what, what do you think about those kinds of arguments that, that these, you know, they're sort of, uh, I don't know, <laughs> uh, that they're not voting in the interest of gun owners, so they shouldn't be, uh, you know, catered to in the, in the, uh, the gun industry or the gun-owning community? Right. It's a, it's a tantalizing argument, but at the end of the day, I, I do not subscribe to that argument for a lot of reasons. I think that that argument may feel right and apt in the short term or as a kind of knee jerk. But if we step back and look at the situation dispassionately and logically and strategically, um, I think it's in our best interest to have as many people exposed to firearm ownership as possible. Um, If we have any hope of gaining trust of folks who as of right now, vote against the interests of gun ownership, the best way to do that is to expose them to gun ownership. We're never going to mm. have anyone vote in our in our interest who knows nothing about firearms. Um, I very rarely vote in favor of things I know nothing about. So mm. that's just human nature. It would be irresponsible to do anything otherwise. So... I think we kind of shoot ourselves in the foot if we exclude, if we kind of excommunicate anybody who doesn't automatically 
vote the way we want them to, then we're kind of cutting off our nose to spite our face. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, another interesting aspect of the whole uh, politi- polarization of gun ownership in America uh, is that it kind of uh, fell to the wayside, I feel like, over the last year, right? Uh, once people were presented with um, an emergency situation like we saw, uh, obviously, with coronavirus and then also with uh, uh, the, ins- the instances of police brutality that, that led a lot of presumably a lot of minorities to buy guns as well, um, uh, and then rioting that led other people, you know, all, all kinds of people to buy guns in the wake of, of the riots we saw last year. Um, it seemed like that was uh, enough to push people out of this sort of uh, partisan way of looking at gun ownership. Um, do you think that's part of the reason why we had that, that big gun surge, that people have looked beyond the politics at when sort of the safety is on the line or uh, at the very least they don't feel safe. Um, And then in addition to that, uh, obviously one of the fastest growing demographics during that surge, uh, according to the National Shooting Sports Foundation, uh, was black Americans. Um, And so, I mean, obviously you don't... uh, don't expect you to speak for every black American in the country. Thank you for that. Presu- Cause some people ask me to do that. And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Black people are not a monolith. And there are a lot Thank of you, different but... reasons why black people might uh, buy guns uh, or Absolutely. not buy guns, just like white people or Asian people or any other kind of person. Absolutely. But, <laughs> but, um, but certainly I would imagine you have a better insight into the community than I do uh, on this topic. So uh, I just wanted to get your thoughts as to what, you know, is, was it just the, the sort of uh, being faced with uncertainty and wanting to protect themselves and their families that drove uh, black Americans to buy guns last year? Was it uh, police brutality incidents? Obviously, uh, Derek Chauvin and, and George Floyd in, in Minneapolis was was massive national news. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a whole movement surrounded by the Black Lives Matter movement that surrounded that. Um, you know, what, what did you see as uh, sort of the big reasons why uh, people uh, from the black community started buying guns more because uh, it seems like there was at least a fairly significant shift in uh, attitudes about gun ownership because traditionally uh, black Americans have been less likely to uh, uh, or been more likely to support stricter gun laws at the very least. Right. Um, in, modern, in modern times. Yeah, I I think you hit the nail on the head. I think that it became a matter of prioritizing safety, and people realized the extent to which their safety and the safety of their nuclear family was, first and foremost, their own responsibility. I think it began to occur to folks that, oh, I'll just call the police is not a, you know, is not a cure for everything that could possibly confront the average American family. And in more cases than not, if your safety is in danger right now, you have to do something about it before the police can get there. Or there's a small sliver of the community that now doesn't any longer trust the police to have their safety at, um, you know, at the forefront. And I'm not here to talk on whether or not that's a that's a valid concern but Mm -hmm. as far as just the impetus for for buying guns uh that 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 plays a role i don't know that it is and i I would say too that that's not necessarily an uncommon 
concern among a certain section of, of gun owners, regardless of race, right? Is this cons- yeah, yeah. concern about government overreach and that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, these are a lot of things that people uh, feel re- that are motive that motivate people to buy guns. So this is a this is a perfect example of of what I was mentioning earlier about how the seemingly disparate groups aren't as different as they may think. Um, the you know your your average kind of middle aged conservative Republican white guy who says, uh, you know, I don't want the government messing with my business, is not preaching much different uh, sermon than the you know the liberal young urbanite black guy who says. I don't want the cops coming in my house. It's kind of the same theme, um, albeit maybe coming from different different origins or expressed in different ways. Um, but the other thing I was going to mention, though, with the with the surge in gun ownership and gun purchases, I don't think it's nearly as political as um, standard gun as, as standard gun standard. I guess traditional gun owners might assume. One one difference that I have noticed in your and I'm speaking in broad generalizations here. There's obviously exceptions to every rule, but I'll just say for for sake of of simplicity, in the the, the pro gun community and the quote unquote anti gun community, one distinction that does exist is the tendency is higher in the pro gun community to be a single issue voter, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of pro gun advocates assume that anyone who owns a gun is going to let that right um, you know take precedence over any other consideration that dictates who how they vote in the uh, anti-gun community slash new gun owning community um, that's not the case uh, we, we, we you know we don't always have the luxury of being single issue voters so whereas some of my friends, let the buck stop with who's going to be the the best advocate for my Second Amendment rights, and that determines who they vote for. I'm not a single-issue voter. I've got to weigh that against, you know, a half a dozen, a dozen different factors that also are very important and highly prioritized when I do the calculus to ultimately figure out where I'm going to cast my vote. So, it's not as simple as, well, you own guns now, so why would you vote for somebody who supports gun control? That's, that's a gross oversimplification of the, the consideration that most people have to put into their voting decisions. Sure, sure, that makes sense. Um, so uh, I guess one question I, I have for you here is, uh, in, in your view, like where, where should we go from here? Where should the the gun industry and the gun rights movement go for here? What do you want to see more of? I would love to see the gun owning community take more pride in the growth of gun ownership across the nation and leave politics out of it, at least at first glance. I think one mistake that we often make in in the gun community is we – we go straight to politics, you know, and, and if I happen to meet somebody at my office who says, hey, I bought a gun this weekend, and we strike up a conversation about that, I, I shouldn't be talking politics 30 seconds into that conversation. Mm-hmm. All I need to concern myself with is just what, 
what do we both know in common about guns? What do we both want to learn about guns? What can we share? What experiences do we share in terms of motivations for purchasing firearms? And leave all of the voting and the politics out of it. That doesn't come into play until you know somebody so well that you would feel totally comfortable asking them about their religion or their love life. If you're not that cool with the person, then you don't need to be discussing how they vote with them. Um, so I, I really think that we need to kind of crawl before we walk, before we run, before we fly in terms of how we're going to best preserve the Second Amendment from the perspective of the gun, gun community. Stop worrying so much about immediately bashing people over the heads with vote this way, vote this way, vote this way, and instead just be a human being, be a, be a neighbor, be a coworker. And it's a much more powerful message for someone who's known you for two years and gone to work with you every day to suddenly say to you, wow, I, I didn't know you carried a gun, as opposed to you beating people over the head with that from the front out of the gate and expecting them to just, you know, succumb or cede the floor to you. Because what happens when people make that face and they say, wow, I, I didn't know you were a gun owner. What that means is I didn't realize that guns belonged in the hands of people like you because you're mm -hmm. like me. So I thought that everybody who owned a gun was different from me. That's really what's going on in a person's head who says with an eyebrow raised, I didn't know you carried a gun. Right. That makes sense. Absolutely. Um, and and so what uh, – I guess what what is some of your advice for trainers out there for you know other firearms trainers or gun store owners or employees uh you know if someone comes into their shop that they're that's you know a different uh gender or race or or uh you know ethnicity or whatever uh background than they're used to seeing in their store or than they're used to training um what are some of the ways that they can uh help make that person feel comfortable there um that that uh what are some of the things that they might do unknowingly to make them uncomfortable? You know, what, what's some of the advice that you would give um, to other people in the gun industry uh, in that regard? Yeah. Um, so the first thing should go without saying, but it doesn't. The first thing is greet the person and be nice. Be just as nice to that person as you would be to your VIP customers or the people who take your classes every week or the people who buy from your store every week. Um, don't assume that that person is just sightseeing or on some kind of field trip. Try and make that person a loyal customer the same way you would anyone else who walks through the door. And the reason I say greet them, show them respect, and, and show them your interest in making them a customer um, is because I, I can't tell you how many times uh, I've been treated otherwise myself. I've gone mm. into countless gun stores and watched just as a plain old people-watching experiment, watched as the, the gun store employees saw to other customers before they saw to me. Now, I don't have enough information from those situations to accuse those people of being racist or sexist. I have no idea why they ignored me. I have no idea if it had anything to do with my race or my gender or anything else for that matter. But all I know is that, one, they opened the door for me to speculate about those things. Um, and two, they lost my trust as a customer. 
because mm -hmm. now it doesn't matter what the answer to the question is. If I have to ask myself the question, why hasn't anyone come over to help me? Then the customer service agent, whether it's an instructor or a, a sales clerk has failed. So uh, that would be my first thing. Flash a smile, be genuine, be yourself. A lot of people, when I talk about how to greet customers, they, they fear that I'm asking people to be fake or inauthentic somehow. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Be yourself because people will smell BS on you if you try to play a role or wear a mask. So be your true self, but also just be polite, you know, be a considerate human being. Be a little cautious about how many F-bombs you drop or how many distasteful comments you make about women. Again, not telling you that you can't make crude jokes. I make crude jokes myself all the time. But you do that in company that you're familiar with and comfortable with, not in front of total strangers whose opinions you, you don't know. Um, mm. So that's kind of where I, mean, I would start. It sounds a lot like just having some, some basic empathy or you know, yeah. uh, being considerate is kind of the key to what you're, what you're talking about there. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, you know, I'll say one other thing real quick on that topic. The other important part is don't be afraid to ask questions or to admit when you're wrong. Because we all are, we all do it, and it's really awkward if you make an assumption about somebody and find that assumption to not be true, then the first thing people do is start getting defensive or try to justify the assumption or something like that. Instead, I think the better way to go about it is to just say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I don't know what got into me. That was the dumbest thing. I, I Forgive me. I said that. There's no reason for it. I'm just, I'm an idiot. I'm sorry. Let's start all over. How are you today? You know, and, and, and just move on. Or if someone's different from you and you're not sure how to navigate that vis-a-vis -vis something related to the sale or to the class, just ask. Because most people don't mind and would rather you ask than assume. We've, we've had, you know, we had a, um, a wheelchair-bound student one time and Akil and I were like, I, I have no idea. What, what do we need to change? We're not, we're not sure how to handle this. And we spent some time going back and forth and finally we were like, Let's just call her. So we called and we said, hey, look, you know, tell us what you need. And, and, that, and first of all, she thanked us for asking her. And secondly, it turned out that she needed a whole lot less than we thought. Because, again, there we go, assuming that because there are differences on the surface, that that requires a whole lot of, you know, change as far as how we operate. And it, it usually doesn't. There were one or two accommodations we had to make, and it was super simple. And other than that, we just conducted the class the same way we always do. And the same mm -hmm. is true on the retail floor or, you know, on the range. So is this, uh, I guess, uh, the sort of thing you're talking about here, maybe like uh, with, with women in, in gun stores, often you hear a lot of uh, trying to push them towards the pink gun or the smallest gun that's available, and it's, uh, you know, which is not necessarily always the best uh course of action for someone, um, especially if they're buying their first gun, you know, giving them a really small gun can often be harder to handle um, mm -hmm. in a lot of cases. Uh, and, and there's sort of assumptions made about women and what uh, in those ways is that is that sort of one of the things you're, yes, you're, you're talking about here? too? Definitely. It's another it's another instance where it's better to ask than to assume. So rather than assuming that a woman because she's a woman wants a gun with some ridiculous coat of paint on it. And just ask her, say, what are you interested in? What have you shot before? What are you looking for? Do you have any idea what, what your preferences might be? Have you ever shot before? And then go from there. Hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, a lot of it just kind of sounds like how you should deal with everybody. <laughs> it does, store, right? and that's kind of the frustrating part is because the answers to some of these questions are so simple that, again, it seems like it. maybe it's, I, I dare call it common sense, but but it, it should go without saying, and yet it, it has to be said. So I'll keep saying it if people ask, but <laughs> I don't know. I think people just get uptight when it comes to things like race, gender, um, you know, sexuality, sexual orientation, just because we've been so swept up in identity pot- politics for so long that now it's almost like walking on eggshells. And I think everybody needs to just kind of relax, take a deep breath, exhale, and just deal with people on a human basis rather than, oh, there's a black person in my store. Or what what should I change? It, it's, you know, treat everybody mm. like a human being and your chances go way up of, of not offending that person. Well, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, honestly. Um, it's, a, it's a very simple uh, sort of advice you've got there for, for how to improve things, uh, which I guess on a, a certain level is, is good because, you know, it's not complicated necessarily to to try and make things better uh, when it comes to, um, you know, how, how you treat uh, sort of these gun culture 2.0 demographics if you haven't had experience with them before coming into your store or doing your training. Uh, although I will say, like, at this point, um, I, I imagine a lot of, unless you're li- living in an area that isn't, that doesn't have a lot of diversity in it, um, you probably, if you're in the gun industry, have dealt with a lot of diverse people, people from all kinds of backgrounds. I mean, in my experience, um, now I live in Northern Virginia, which happens to be probably a more, uh, you know, diverse area in terms of, uh, race and, and religion and so forth, uh, mm-hmm. than, than some other areas. But, um, you know, shooting has been one of the most diverse activities that I engage in, you know, mm-hmm. uh, up there with like football fandom, you know, sports, <laughs> yeah. right. Uh, but you know, snowboarding is much less <laughs> diverse than, than shoot. like I go to the range and there's all kinds of people there. Um, yeah. and the, the people who run my local store are used to dealing with that at this point. But, um, I but yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, with this latest surge, perhaps there were areas where people, had new customers. They just didn't understand. They weren't used to dealing with them. And they, yeah, I think it makes sense what you're saying that like they got, this is something new to me and mm-hmm. maybe they try to, the way they handle it doesn't work out well. Yeah. Um, and the key is to just be, just trying to have some empathy and be human. Yeah. I, I think as far as how much diversity uh, you're exposed to that, that really is a regional thing. I mean, there's, there, if, if you live anywhere close to even a medium-sized city, you're going to have way more diversity than, than if you live in places that are more sparsely popu- populated. Um, sure. I, I can drive 100 miles from here and meet people who have never laid eyes on a black person before. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it just depends on where you are. It's been very recently that I've walked into an establishment that was full of white people and gotten the stares um, that – Again, I I can't read people's minds, but that mm. that I interpreted as, well, this is something new, you know, <laughs> never seen her. She's not from around here, um, sure. so so that happens even today. And it, and it mm. and again, it, people are sensitive about this stuff. And I want to make it clear that reaction from folks does not make them racist. <laughs> um, you know, noticing something different in your environment 
is a good thing. That's what we teach our students to do. It doesn't, if you happen to notice that there's a black person walking around and there usually aren't any black people walking around, that's fine. It doesn't make you racist. Uh, one of my biggest pet peeves is people who claim to be colorblind. Unless you're actually blind, you're not colorblind. You totally notice what race everyone is. So there's no point in pretending that it's not sure. a thing because that sure. is a thing. Uh, no, that makes sense. Um, and as far as the industry goes, um, you know, I know one of the things that, that uh, gets talked about a lot with uh, – uh, especially with with minorities and and the gun industry is is, is there's a um, at least a lack of representation when it comes to gun store ownership. Um, how how are things when it comes to uh, you know training companies and and, and the training industry? Uh, like do you, do you think that the industry, whether it's makers, dealers, trainers, that we need to see more of an effort put into um, you know, uh, reaching out to colors of uh, communities of color and and different uh, demographics to try and bring them into ownership of of gun stores or gun companies or training companies is is that a, what is that a major issue from your point of view? Is that something that still needs improvement at this point? Yeah, I definitely. Or, or are we think doing so. well? Uh, we're doing better. I mean, we're moving in the right direction, but I, I definitely think that there's much to be gained from reaching out to communities that may not have previously considered owning a gun store or owning a training company um, for all of the same reasons that diversifying the instructor uh, community is advantageous, I think. It just means the more... The more um, diversity we have in the ranks, the more chances we have of reaching new folks in the broader community, of, bro of broadening, expanding our, our entire target market, both commercially and politically. So I, I just, I don't see a downside to that at all. Hmm. Right. That makes sense. But uh, you I, know, I think you made a lot of good points here, but, um, so last thing, uh, if people want to take your class, if they want to maybe join your instructor course to, to sort of learn how to better um, incorporate different uh, points of view and reach out to different demographics, how can they do that? Shameless plug. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, if you're interested in training with uh, Rangemaster under Tom and Lynn Givens, the website is rangemaster.com. You can also follow Rangemaster's event schedule on Eventbrite. Um, at rangemaster.eventbrite.com. And locally, or I guess regionally, Akil and I are based in the Nashville area. Uh, so that's citizenssafety.com. And you can also follow us on Eventbrite, citizenssafety.eventbrite.com. And we're all over social media and all of the usual online platforms. We do, Akil and I, uh, we do travel. So if you're not in the Nashville area and you're interested in training with us, just give us a holler. You can email both of us at info at citizenssafety.com. We would love to train with you. Hey, well, all right. Well, Tiffany Johnson, we really appreciate you coming on and giving us your perspective. Uh, I think it's very valuable and we've, I think I learned a lot by uh, hearing from you. So I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I appreciate you inviting me. Absolutely. I really enjoyed having Tiffany on. I think it's important to have people who've 
you know, experience different things than you, uh, who come at topics from a different point of view. Um, I really want that to be part of what this podcast does. Um, obviously as an extension of what the reload as a whole does. Um, and I, you know, I think that I'm going to strive to try and have some people on as well that don't necessarily, uh, probably agree with a lot of the things that I do as far as, uh, you know, gun rights or gun control or gun legislation are concerned. Um, you know, that's one thing I'm going to try and, and bring more of to this podcast as well. It's been great having, you know, people who I think are very knowledgeable. Um, you know, that's the, that's the other big thing I want for this podcast is knowledgeable people, not just, you know, talking heads or, or people who want to just repeat old talking points. Um, but, uh, you know, I'd also like to have on people that sort of challenge the things that I believe and maybe the things that you guys believe out there, uh, listening. Um, so we can have, you know, a more full, full throated conversation, a more thoroughly informed, uh, discussion. I think that that's healthy. I think it's good. Um, and you know, I think bringing on people, even if they agree with me on, you know, my personal views about, uh, gun rights, uh, you know, like uh, I'm sure Tiffany and I probably have, uh, quite a lot of, uh, similar <laughs> opinions on, on, on these things. It seemed that way, at least from, from, uh, you know, talking with her, I've met her before, of course, but, but, um, you know, I, I think uh, it'd be great to have on some people that we can really have a good disagreement, get to the core of an issue, and and hash it out. Uh, I think that'll be healthy and and even interesting to listen to as well. You know, th- this conversation I think was very interesting to listen to, hearing someone else from a different point of view than than I am, uh, and uh, you know, who's had different experiences in life than I have, um, and I think. The same will be true when, when I bring on uh, people from opposing points of view, uh, as long as, obviously, as long as there can be a reasonable discussion, I think that's what I want to strive for and what I'll seek out here on the podcast. But uh, that's it for this episode. Uh, as always, uh, for the third or fourth time, I think I'll put the pitch in here that if you want to get this uh, early, you can join today, uh, and if you want extra uh content exclusive access to member content um you know you can head on over to the reload.com and join today but uh otherwise uh, you know i think we're gonna have uh um a couple professors coming up here that should be interesting uh one from northeastern uh university uh, to discuss uh mass shootings um and coverage of them and how frequently they actually happen whether or not they're increasing um as seems to be portrayed by the media and then we're also going to have uh, one from Duke University discussed perhaps uh, some of the um, big cases going through the federal court system. We talked about some of those with uh, David French um, on a previous episode, which you guys can check out. Uh, it's freely available on all of the major podcasting platforms now. Um, but, uh, you know, we're going to go more in depth on the California assault weapons ban ruling uh, because there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in there. And uh, uh, I think that will be grounds for a fruitful discussion so make sure you tune in again next time that is all for this week thank you guys for coming along and listening to what uh, i had to say i made the devil run i gave him poison just for fun i had one friend now there's none 
But none of them 